Hey, Praxis family. There we go. There we go. I was like, man, they're all quiet now. Hey, well, I'm so excited to be here with you on our last sermon on the seasons of love and life. If you're brand new here, my name is Pastor Philip. If you're watching online, we love you guys too. And I want to just extend a warm welcome to anyone who's here for the very first time. And we're so glad that you chose to be here tonight. You know, there's a lot of cliches out there about love and marriage. I think most of them are probably written, about, written by single guys who are hopeless romantics and just kind of say stuff. I'm like, bro, you don't even know. You have no idea. You have no idea what it takes to get to those moments of ecstasy and fun and incredible adventure and deepest joy and hope because you don't know what it's like to go through the war and trial and fires of marriage. Otherwise, you wouldn't be saying those little cliches. I remember a buddy of mine, he got this little note from someone that broke up with him. And it said, if it's true love, let it go. And if it's meant to be, it will come back to you. I was like, man, what a terrible way to break up. Gosh. Man, if I'm married, there's no way I'm letting go of my wife. No way. There is no way I'm going to fight for her with all that I have in me. I'm going to fight with every ounce. I am not letting go of my marriage. You see, people let go of great relationships because of pride, because they don't know how to handle conflict, or because they were a complete jerk and they lost the person. Now, these three these cliches are unique in that I think they have a different way they could be written too. If I were to rewrite this cliche, I'm going to tell you two more, I would say this one should be written like this. If it's true love, you'll be honest and you'll put in the hard work to stay together. If it's true love, you'll put Jesus first and not make me an idol. There was a movie that had a really interesting line that people use and they'll say, you hadn't yet, hello. Some of you maybe know that movie. But you see, no, you didn't. You found me attractive and you were interested in me because the way I looked, not a good way to start forever if it remains at that. You see, the movie of this cliche, it depicts a man who treated his wife terribly, took her for granted, and used her on his timetable. And she was so broken, traumatized by the relationship that when he came back, just the simple, kindest thing had her <gasps> melting in a pool. But the thing is, just showing up isn't godly love. Showing up repentant and willing to change and showing with real action is. You see, a godly marriage takes a representative of real action. And so that cliche should probably be written like this. If you, you had me at, you were washing the dishes and you put the kids to sleep. Wow. Or you had me at listening to your prayers and studying the Bible. Come on now. Come on now. There's no amens on that one. Amen. Let's go. Man, I'm going to get turned on seeing just my wife reading the word. Somebody's like, well, that's too far. 
You know what? The thing is, though, our values should be changed to some of these things because we are valuing a cultural motif as opposed to valuing eternal qualities. When you see an eternal quality, you're like, whoa, I see lifetime right there. I'm going to be going to talk to her. You see how she was serving those people at Afterglow? She's going to serve our children and me like. Did you see how he was working so hard out there, taking all those lights down and doing all those things, cleaning up when no one was looking? Man, I know when I come home, he'll, he'll have things prepared for us. He's going to watch out for our things. Man, this man is going to provide. Wow. Uh, ooh, I see eternal quality right there. You see, we've got to have bigger vision values that determine marriage qualities. Last cliche, this is kind of a general one that's out there. It's like, I think we should kiss and make up. Now, I'll be the first one to tell you, I love making out with my wife. Oh, I, I do, I do, I do. But I promise you this, my wife will not make out with me if I haven't shown her sacrificial love. If I haven't said sorry. If I haven't made amends with real action, there is no way... Her lips will find mine. Nah. -uh. Silk sheets don't go the distance without confession of sin, thoughtful words, selfless, kind actions to keep your marriage going the distance so that makeup sex actually could happen. So those great makeout sessions could actually occur and they mean something. A lot of conflict happens when people burn things to the ground quick and then they feel like they can't go all the way back to make amends because their pride is too big. And so our text tonight hits on the topic of marriage and what makes it grounded. And particularly the steps that it takes. I'm not falling on this one. The steps that it takes to build a marriage and the steps that it also takes to tear down one. And so tonight I want to talk about guarding marriage from divorce. You see, there was kind of this pre-fall vision of what marriage was intended to look like in its most idealistic form. If you go to the book of Genesis and you open up to the very first three chapters, you see creation emerge. And you see that marriage is a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman with four unique purposes. Four unique purposes that Genesis kind of brings together here immediately. The first one is companionship. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, here God creates light, day, creation of all kinds of animals and plants. And after every single day, he says, and it was Good. And then he gets to Adam and he's like, hmm, a bro ain't good. Not because he wasn't a good creation, God made him. No, it says that he didn't have anyone to match him. Adam looked at every single animal and he found within his heart the realization, they have a pair, but I don't. There's nobody like me. You see, when the Bible says that Adam was in this state, God took pity on him and realized, no, this is not good for him to be alone. 
Some of you in your singleness right now, you have a spirit of discontentment. And you know what? There is some level of biblical, you know, you could say value or rather kind of, hey, affirmation. You know, when that isn't there, there is something that hurts within the heart. Adam experienced it. So when someone's like, I mean, you're just so desperate, you're always like, no. There's something real about that. Adam, in the beginning of creation, had that feeling. It's a real feeling. But then it says that God took a rib from him. If you take it from the Greek or the Hebrew, rather, it's more of a picture that God almost virtually split Adam in half and brought him an equal to fill in. So when someone wants to say, hey, God took a rib from him, that's all it needed. True. But a rather a bigger and more beautiful picture is the realization that God didn't just take a piece of Adam and make Eve. He took half of him and he made another complete half and put them together. Indicating a sense of equality. He didn't take something from the head that she would be better. Didn't take something from the feet that she would be beneath. But something by his side so there would be this understanding of equality. But now the difference is, is unique because it says there in, in Genesis chapter 1 that God made mankind in his image both male and female. He said that there were differences required for them to then come together to become one. These differences were unique and purposeful. The differences were not to indicate value being greater and value being lesser. Because it said that they were both made in whose image? Whose image? God's image. Come on, guys. We've got to talk together. Let's wake up. I know it's Friday, a long week, but this is important for you and for me. And so there was this understanding that one of the first unique purposes was companionship. The other was procreation. Hallelujah. Say that again. Procreation. That was the blessing. God said, be fruitful and Multiply. Oh, you know that one, do you? Oh, I see. I see. Okay. All right. I understand. That's okay. Young people got their minds somewhere. But see, that was one of the great unique purposes for marriage. Marriage was to have the aspect of procreation. That was unique because their differences gave them the ability for that. That was for them. Because when they came together, they could create life. Wow. What a gift. Third, God said to Adam, now you two have dominion over. And the third idea here at the pre-fall vision is that there was mission. One of the third qualities, unique qualities of marriage before the fall was that God intended them to have a mission together. They were to have a purpose together. There was something that would drive them both forward because any man who's simply looking as the one woman as his prize, when he attains her without a greater mission and vision, will idolize the woman as his God. Some of you women, as you're searching and seeking a man, you finally, oh, Lord, I got him. Finally, I got down to the aisle. Amen, hallelujah. It will solve every problem I had. No, if you don't have a mission and vision for your life beyond this person, that person becomes God to you. They were the one thing you were seeking with all your heart, mind, and soul instead of Jesus being first. Because even though Adam had a hunger for a companion, his mission did not stop. His mission did not stop. It kept going. Because companionship 
is a blessing when they both are moving in the same direction. How do you know someone's the right one? You could kind of think about it like this. If you have two people running a race and one person keeps stopping to tie their shoe and, and grab some water, you know, I need to sit down, I need to do this one thing, and you keep lapping them, that's not the right person. The right person is someone who's going to be jogging at the same pace as you and moving at the same direction, moving towards God-given quality and vision, and you can tap them on the shoulder. Hey, hey, I saw you running over there. Let's do this together. Let's go in the same direction. Fourthly, fourthly, great purpose for marriage is redemption. Redemption. You see, at the end of Genesis chapter 3, it says that God provided skins for them. You know, some people are like, what's the big deal about that? The first person to ever kill, sadly, beyond the, the act of Adam and Eve, you could say they brought in the, the death, but it was God. For skins to be given to them as covering meant that God took and killed the representation of sin and the plan of redemption. That God would be the ultimate provider for their salvation. You see, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet still sinners, God died for us. Your marriage should reveal that redemption to the world. Your marriage should reveal the love that God has for humanity. Your marriage through its struggles and joys, highs and lows should be a revelation of who Jesus is to the world. When they see you guys kiss and make up in the biblical way, with confession, with a sorry, when your children see mom come over like, sweetie, I am so sorry. My words were, were way too harsh. I, I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. You're my love and my husband. Right? What do those kids see? What example are the children seeing that's going on there? When a father goes up to his wife and gives her a big hug and says, man, I feel like I haven't seen you for so long. I have neglected to prioritize you over this last couple weeks. I understand why you've been so frustrated. I'm so sorry. And then he gives her a kiss. And those children watch that. Or those friends who are around Maybe see a husband and wife kind of have a little spat at the dinner table, a bunch of friends, and he's like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that. I, I really do apologize. It shows what kind of love God has for humanity. Four great purposes, companionship, procreation, mission, redemption. Now, after the fall, though, things get complex. They get real complex. A little bit more interesting. You see, our text that we've been in this whole series is first... Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. If, if you turn there with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we're going to spend the remainder of our time, you'll see here that Paul now has to talk about our unique idea that God did not design in the first three chapters, divorce. People kind of get squeamish when we talk about that in the Bible, but the truth is that the Bible does address the issue of divorce. It talks about when it can happen and when it shouldn't happen. But you see, God's greatest ideal, though, is that fourth purpose of, of marriage, and that is redemption, reconciliation, that couples would work hard so that they would never have to walk down that road. And so if you were going to say, hey, what are some steps to guard this, to, to, to make the next sure step forward that I might build to a greater purpose, a greater vision for God 
and the kingdom with my spouse, listen now, hear what emerges. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, for the matters that you wrote about, boom, right in the beginning you realize they're talking to Paul through a letter and they're saying, listen, we got some issues going on. We got some problems we need you to address. So this is Paul kind of giving them an answer to one of their questions. Hey, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, this is kind of confused in the Greek. You're like, wait, what? What? If you read the Message Bible, which is kind of a, a scholarly transliteration, a, kind of a paraphrase of sorts, it says it like this. Now, getting down to the questions you asked me in the letter. First, is it a good thing to have sexual relations? And he writes here, certainly, but within a context. And we go back to the text here in, in our Bible and says, but since sexual immorality is occurring among you, each one should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. They're writing about, listen, what do we do about the sexual kind of depravity that's happening amongst us? And Paul's like, listen, 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 listen. If we're going to deal with this issue, I need you to be very clear. One husband, one wife. Not one husband, three wives. Or one wife and four husbands. Some of you are like, whoa, how did that happen? But that was the space that they were in. There was a little bit of sexual infidelity that was occurring. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, can't believe that happened down there. Ah, everything's repeated. Now in culture, what do we have? People living in polyamorous relationships. Well, listen, pastor. All you need is consent and respect and you can do what you need. Your spouse not giving you enough, you can go and talk to her and say, hey, listen, honey, you know, I love you, I care for you, but you know, Susan down the street, man, she's looking real good and she said we could, you know, do stuff and so I think if you're all right with it, you're all right, okay, good. Well, I'll be down her at her house and I'll come back later. Okay, no problem. Paul's like, wait, what? What's going on over there? No, 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 no. There's no Susan or Marsha. You stay with Monica, the girl you said I do for I'm making up these names, right? But Paul is bringing one real important clarity. There is an overarching theological vision of marriage. The, the Bible tells us that God has how many brides? One. He chose a distinct people with a mission to speak and preach the world that they might all become part of that one bride. God was pissed and out of the royal divine kind of pissed when they went off with other gods. He said he was hurt with their adultery, prostituting themselves to the nations around them. God was not happy with other people involved in the marriage bed. So when people want to say, hey, how do I guard my marriage? First off, bro, just be real simple math here, okay? One woman, one man, that's it. No more, no less. Happy marriage. But when people want to start inviting different things like another person into a relationship, whether it's with respect or no respect and you commit adultery, or there's pornography. I remember one counselor talking to me that I was just getting advice. Hey, how, how do you do marriage advice for couples? You know, I've been doing a lot of marriage advice. Well, you know, to spice things up, I think, you know, pornography is actually okay for couples. Are you flat? Whether it's a real person or inviting someone through the screen, that is not appropriate for a marriage bed. The, Paul's real clear. Hey, to deal with the sexual immorality, let's start with the basics. One husband, 
one wife. That's it. And then he goes on. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. Now if we stop there, some people say, oh, the patriarch. You see, these guys are always trying to dominate. Uh -uh. Paul is real clear. He says, no, there's equality here because listen up. In the same way, husbands do not have authority over their body, but yields it to his wife. That means there is this mutuality of submission. You know, I love being able to do marital counseling with couples and premarital counseling with couples. And we stop at the theology of, of kind of the marriage unit. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. And it says, submit to one another. Submission is something that happens in an equal partnership. Submission is not just something that the wife does. Okay, you submit to me because the Bible says submit. You're not listening to me, woman. Ooh, boy. Does God talk to you like that? Oh, he doesn't? Okay, then don't talk to her like that. So the thing is, there is a mutuality here. And Paul's talking about the fact that, listen, sexuality is a blessing in marriage. When couples want to talk about, hey, what are kind of the core things that, that kind of keeps a good marriage together? One of them is absolutely sexuality. I remember being in a counseling session with someone, and they looked at me and they said, we haven't had sex in over a year. Wait, and you guys, you're married? Yeah. You haven't had sex in how long? Probably over a year. Ooh, okay. Well, why don't you guys come see me in my office? In our marriage counseling courses is, uh, in the seminary, one of the real easy kind of rubrics or measurements of the health of a marital unit is, is there regularity to sex? That's a really important part to a marriage. Now, I love being able to do this. Can I have couples do this? Close their eyes. In the pre-engagement counseling or engagement counseling, I say, okay, how many times do you want to have sex? And sometimes it's kind of like the fingers go up and the guy's kind of thinking and the fingers keep going. In a week, pastor, in a week or a day, the girl's like, oh, let her. And, you know, the hands kind of measure up and, and they open their eyes and the guy's like, and the girl's like. And it's always kind of a fun moment. But you see, the regularity is up to that couple, how much they want to do that. So there's not this, this, this rubric, okay, it has to happen this amount of times, but there must be a mutuality of agreement to that. And it has to happen regularly. Now, in a relationship, what else is kind of the basic core? There has to be healthy communication. You know, God says in there in Genesis that he went and met with Adam and Eve literally in the garden. That was the beautiful reality that they got to experience. And so each one of you, if there isn't a regular meeting of one another on a daily basis, man, I think you're in trouble. I think that every couple needs to have at least 30 minutes of communication face-to-face -face every day. Every couple, then every week, needs a date night every single week. Every month, you need to have an outing that you take together. Every year, you need to take at least one to two vacations if you can afford it. You need to prioritize that marital unit to communicate, to talk. And third, every marital unit needs to have respect. That when you walk out of the house, man, you know you are, you are amazing because your spouse spoke life into you. 
A lot of marriages are not guarded from divorce because they don't know how much their spouse thinks highly of them. Baby, I, I think all, so much about you. I think all the time. And I think so highly of you too. Well, then tell me. Say something. Move that mouth that you seem to talk about sports all the time for. Say something nice about me. You talk about that, that Stephen Curry guy all the time. You talk about the dude over there. I don't know. Right? Use your mouth to speak words of life into them. So that when that woman goes into the workplace or, or she stays at home being a mom, she's like, man, my husband thinks everything about me. He loves me. And that woman, same thing, that when your man leaves the home and he's going into the workforce, when that young lady as secretary wants to, you know, hey, how you doing? Everything's great. I love my life. My wife thinks, you know, so that no spouse, when temptation arises, does not have to feel a sense of diminishment because there has been a lack of respect and affirmation. We keep going. Verse, verse 5 here. So do not deprive each other, perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, this is a really interesting thing. Paul brings out this idea that humanity has a problem with self-control. My buddies here, we play basketball together, and we talk about, man, we want to get fit. We want to get healthy. We want to really move forward in life. But then there's that lack of self-control that emerges like at night. Bro, I'm real hungry. I need that donut. And it's midnight. I know I shouldn't, but that's what gets me. I don't know what gets you, but that's what gets me. You see, but Paul brings out the idea that there is a lack of self-control. And one of the blessings of marriage is that there is an outlet to the sexual hunger that one experiences. Now, what do you do when you're a single and you're feeling sexually hungry? That's one of the realities that emerges as people get older and older and older. And there's no outlet to that. What do I do? What do I do, pastor? It is not an easy place to be in as a single person. I definitely understand that. But your outlet to the pain and frustration that you feel is not going against God's word. It is not going and finding darker spaces to feel guilt and shame and frustration. And then you keep hitting a wall of being like, man, why did I go down that path? That's what I feel like whenever I'm moving in directions I know the Lord doesn't have for me. You don't set yourself up for success and building on the steps of a healthy marriage in the future when you don't take those godly steps as a single person. When you try and move and force finding a way to please yourself as a single person in ungodly ways, you don't build yourself up in the best way when you do say I do. Because like we said last week, listen, just because you said I do and your spouse is there to be, you know, an outlet to the the blessing of sexuality together, it doesn't mean it's always going to be available either. So do you have self-control? Because one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. You know, one of the things that you've got to realize, there can be no pride in your life that you would never fall. Oh, I will always be self-disciplined. Oh, pastor, I, I would never. I would never do that against my spouse. We've got a couple people here who are about to get married. I'm so excited for them. But if they think 
they can walk into that marriage place with pride and arrogance that they would never fall, they're about to experience something terrible in their life. Amazing book, What Cheaters Want You to Know. One of the unique factors between all people who were cheaters in this study done by, by psychologists, you know the one thing they all had in common? They all had pride that they would never fall. That was the one unifying thing between all of them. They never thought they would commit an adultery. I remember a buddy of mine, sadly, man. One day, he, I get to see this guy, and we talk, and he's, he's just explaining to me what happened. And he said, Pastor, I couldn't believe it. From one innocent text message from a coworker, it led me down a path of then meeting her at a different time, talking in private, and leading down to actually being an affair over a two-year period. Adventist, young adult. If you think that self-control is not gonna be is gonna be something that you possess to the utmost, ooh, be careful. First Peter 5:8. Be vigilant, therefore, your devil, your de the devil is seeking to whom he may devour. You've got to be vigilant. You've always got to be on guard. That's a very important thing. So here, Paul continues then. He says, if you're going to deprive yourselves, may it be for the purpose of prayer, for a specific purpose in a specific time. And then he goes on, verse 8. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, hey, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they can't control themselves, they should marry. It's better to marry than burn with passion. Amen, bro. To the married, I command you in this way, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. A husband must not divorce his wife. Now, he's talking to two believers. And he says, listen, if you're going to separate from your spouse, fine, go ahead, do that. But listen, you can't remarry. Oh, wait, what do you mean I can't remarry? Let's talk about why and when that happens. Continue going on with me here for a moment. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord, but if a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through the wife, and for the unbelieving wife, she's been sanctified by her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will be saved by your through your husband or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife here Paul gives them a reality that those who are believers stay married to each other don't be getting unmarried but if you're married to an unbeliever because this is what happened in Corinth you see people were hearing the gospel for the very first time they were convicted in their hearts wow I, I do believe and trust in Jesus but then what if the spouse didn't get to that point and so then someone is married to an unbeliever they were married to, to someone who still worshipped the pagan god, Caesar as the Lord. But now the Christian said, no, Christ is Lord. In those circumstances, Paul is very clear. He's like, listen, if that unbelieving spouse wants to go, they can go. So that's one space 
where divorce would be permitted. What's another? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 through 32, that if there is adultery, there is permission for divorce. Adultery in the Greek literally was the idea of actual adultery, sex itself occurring between two other people that are not husband and wife when one is married and the other isn't. Or maybe they're both married and they're doing that with each other and their spouses are not, not permitting that. Well, they shouldn't. There's another few situations that as time has progressed now that leads people to say, hey, I'd like to pursue divorce. And those are in spaces of addiction and abuse. You know, there is technically, you could say, a, a spot for that when we consider 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. And it says, anyone who does not provide for their, their relatives, especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. When you are neglecting, abandoning your family. You know, there's a family I've been working with that the husband literally just left, just walked away. Is that woman to stay with this guy who's now who knows where forever? He's literally abandoned his home. There's a lot of single moms out there. So the Bible does provide spaces for an out. But the question though is, Pastor, I don't want to have that experience happen to me. And I don't want that for you. You see, divorce statistics are such that there is pretty close to a 50% rate of divorce in the United States. And we said this last week that in arranged marriages around the world, it's, it's actually significantly lower. Some countries less than 5%. Now we could say, hey, there's a lot of cultural stigma. There's a lot of resources attached to that. I get it. But I want to tell you that Christians who have this space of marriage do not find themselves in the 50% rank for divorce. Believe it or not, psychologists did a study on committed Christians. People who are actively pursuing Jesus in studying the word, attending the Christian kind of community of faith on a, week, on a weekly, at least multiple times, they, who are committed Christians, their divorce rate is less than 20%. You see, people who are actively pursuing the Lord, reading scripture, actively saying, God, you're above us and your authority is speaking into my life, their divorce rate is so much less because they've got someone to help them along the way. They've got truth to guide them along the way. I want to encourage each one of you to recognize when I'm encouraging you to read your Bible, to pray, to be committed to the kingdom. It isn't just because I need more people to help us here at the church, which we do. We definitely do. But it's also for your betterment. It's because when you walk closer to Jesus in community, in the word, you're guarding yourself against the wiles of Satan, man, in so many different ways. That is the blessing of community. That is the blessing of Jesus. That's the blessing of having his anointing over you when you're walking in faithfulness with him. You want to guard your, your marriage from divorce? Stay committed as a believer. My second challenge to you tonight as the band comes up, if you want to guard your marriage from divorce, follow those basics that I talked about earlier. Hey, regular affirmation, regular communication in your marriage, Regular sexuality in your marriage, regularity in these various ways provides an outlet to feeling like both affirmed verbally, feeling served and honored practically, and to have a binding experience then with that, that's of intimacy. Third challenge for those of you as you're thinking about what is to come one day, 
Some of you are single in here. Well, actually, most of you are single in here. And you're like, Pastor, why did you even talk to us about marriage and divorce? It feels like way ahead of our game. No, 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 no. We're in the blue zone, baby. We're all about preventative medicine. And I'm about preventative spirituality for you. I want to prevent divorce before you even get there. I don't want you to have a heart disease of sin in your marriage. That's so important for you to recognize. You've got to make a decision today as a single person. This is my challenge to you. Choose to deepen in your understanding of relationships today. Choose to deepen your understanding of what it looks like to be a committed person of faith in a community today, now, before you ever get to I do. I challenge you to deal with the traumas of your past. Don't bring that into a marriage. I challenge you to step into being a risk taker in this way, that you would be the godly man you were called to be in a world that wants to place men in a lighter position than they should be. I command you and challenge you women to be the godly women God wants you to be in a culture that has idolized only a couple things about you and forgotten everything that God wanted you to be. I challenge you to bring those two together and to see what God can do to bring about beauty and a marriage one day for each one of you that is guarded from divorce. I want to leave you with this. You see, Samson and Moses were unique examples for us to look at later on. I'd love for you to take some time to study their lives. I challenge you to the last thing. I want you to read Judges chapter 16 this weekend and Exodus chapter 18. And I want you to look how these two men of different visions, one was setting himself up for divorce all along the way. Samson, one after another, he said, I chose because she was delightful to my eyes. Moses was given a woman because she was valuable of everything that she brought to him. And every step of the way, Samson would choose to just be with a woman who would be influenced by the culture, not the kingdom. But Moses chose to be with a woman who was influenced by God himself and would speak life into him. You see, there are marriage partners that you can choose who are of this world and there are marriage partners that you can choose that are of the kingdom don't choose simply by what your eyes can see of your heart but choose and ask God anoint my eyes with your salve that I might see with your vision that I might see through your word